This week on Making Contact. Picture this mother for a moment following her son's corpse through the forest, stopping at a distance to wait for his murderers to finish their tea. Renowned Indian author Arundhati Roy says her country's government has declared war on its own people. Her outspokenness earned her an invitation to spend time with the so-called Maoist rebels. It's easier on the liberal conscience to believe that the war in the forests is a war between the government of India and the Maoists. It's convenient to forget that tribal people in central India have a history of resistance that predates Mao by centuries. On this edition, Arundhati Roy takes us into the jungles of India as she reads excerpts from her new book, Walking with the Comrades. I'm Andrew Stelzer, and this is Making Contact, a program connecting people, vital ideas, and important information. Sometime in September, I think it was, or maybe a little earlier, the Indian government announced its latest war against its own people. It was called Operation Green Hunt. Actually, uh, unlike America, which has been waging war against other countries almost every year for the last so many decades, the Indian government has been waging war against uh, what it considers its own people ever since it became a sovereign, independent country. So the Indian Army has been deployed in Manipur, in Nagaland, in Mizoram, in Kashmir, in Punjab, in Bengal, in Telangana, in Goa. Uh, it's been continuously at war. And now there are plans to deploy it in central India against the population of indigenous people who live in the forested heartland of India. If you look at a map of India and you map where the minerals are, where the forests are, where the indigenous people are, they're all stacked up on top of each other. And in these forests, you have $3 trillion worth of bauxite. You have iron ore, you have copper, gold, diamonds. It's the old story. You know, the, the indigenous people must be moved out because India has to develop, it has to become a superpower and so on. So around 2005, uh, the Indian government signed a series of memorandums of understanding with many mining corporations, infrastructure companies, road building, dams, all of that, sort of transformed this whole swathe of territory into something else. And at that time, the Indian Prime Minister, Manmohan Singh, the head of the world's biggest democracy, who's never won an election in his life, announced that the Maoists were the single largest internal security threat. Uh, when he said that, uh, the stocks of the mining companies just ratcheted up because it signaled that the Indian government was now going to move and really clear these forests and fight this battle. At the time, the media, which is of course as you all know, even here, this is the case that the entire economic turnover of the media comes from corporate advertising. So many of the media companies are owned by mining companies, either directly or you know, through advertising, controlled by them. 
So uh, this entire spectrum of resistance, not all of it Maoist, the Maoists are just the most militant end, but outside the forest there are Gandhians, there are you know, all kinds of movements, the whole bandwidth, they were being called terrorists. Basically, poverty and terrorism were conflated. And it was a crime to be poor. It is a crime to be poor now in India. And um, we were all being called upon to condemn these terrorists and to support this war that had been brazenly announced, Operation Green Hunt, where 200,000 paramilitary forces were moving in, encircling these forests. Already a tribal militia called the Salva Judum had been formed in Chhattisgarh. It had moved through the villages. It had burnt down something like 600 villages. 350,000 people were on the run. 50,000 had been moved into police camps. The rest were simply missing. Some had joined the Maoists, others had migrated to nearby states, you know, trying to eke out a living in some way. Basically, the land was being cleared. But to their credit, activists from all over India, India gathered and, and, and began to raise their voice against Operation Green Hunt. And it was around then that I got a note under my door uh, and uh, that led to my spending some weeks in the forest walking with the comrades. And I'm going to just read you little excerpts from this essay and then we can talk about it. <clears throat> the terse typewritten note slipped under my door in a sealed envelope confirmed my appointment with India's single biggest internal security challenge. I'd been waiting for months to hear from them. I had to be at the Ma Danteshwari Mandir, that's a temple, in Dantewara, Chhattisgarh, at any of four given times on two given days. That was to take care of bad weather, punctures, blockades, transport strikes, and sheer bad luck. The note said, writer should have camera, tikka, tikkas like a bindi, uh, and coconut. Meter will have cap, Hindi Outlook magazine, and bananas. The password will be Namaskar Guruji. There are many ways to describe Dantewara. It's an oxymoron. It's a border town smack in the heart of India. It's the epicenter of a war. It's an upside down inside-out town. In Dantewara, the police wear plain clothes and the rebels wear uniforms. The jail superintendent is in jail and the prisoners are free. 300 of them escaped from the old town jail two years ago. But now there are thousands of them back there. Women who've been raped are in police custody. The rapists give speeches in the bazaar. Across the Indravati River, in the area controlled by the Maoists, is the place police call Pakistan. There, the villages are empty, but the forest is full of people. Children who ought to be in school run wild. In the lovely forest villages, the concrete school buildings have either been blown up and lie in a heap, or they're full of policemen. The deadly war that's unfolding in the jungle is a war that the government of India is both proud and shy of. 
Operation Green Hunt has been proclaimed as well as denied. P. Chidambaram, India's Home Minister and CEO of the war, says it doesn't exist, that it's a media creation. And yet substantial funds have been allocated to it and tens of thousands of troops are being mobilized for it. If ghosts are the lingering spirits of someone or something that has ceased to exist, then perhaps the National Mineral Development Corporation's new four-lane highway crashing through the forest is the opposite of a ghost. Perhaps it's the harbinger of what is still to come. The antagonists in the forest are disparate and unequal in almost every way. On one side is a massive paramilitary force armed with the money, the firepower, the media, and the hubris of an emerging superpower. On the other, ordinary villagers armed with traditional weapons backed by a superbly organized, hugely motivated Maoist guerrilla fighting force with an extraordinary and violent history of armed rebellion. The Maoists and the paramilitary are old adversaries and have fought older avatars of each other several times before. Telangana in the 50s, West Bengal, Bihar, Srikakulam in Andhra Pradesh in the late 60s and 70s, and then again in Andhra Pradesh, Bihar, and Maharashtra from the 80s all the way to the present. Each time it seemed as though the Maoists or their previous avatars had been not just defeated, but literally physically exterminated. But each time they've re-emerged more organized, more determined, and more influential than ever. Today, the insurrection has spread through the mineral-rich forests of Chhattisgarh, Jharkhand, Orissa, and West Bengal, homeland to millions of India's tribal people, dreamland to the corporate world. It's easier on the liberal conscience to believe that the war in the forests is a war between the government of India and the Maoists, who call elections a sham, parliament a pigsty, and have openly declared their intention to overthrow the Indian state. It's convenient to forget that tribal people in central India have a history of resistance that predates Mao by centuries. That's a truism, of course, if they didn't they wouldn't exist. Their rebellions were cruelly crushed, many thousands killed, but the people were never conquered. Even after independence, tribal people were at the heart of the first uprising that could be described as Maoist in Nakshalbari, a village in West Bengal, where the word Nakshalite, now used interchangeably with Maoist, originates. This legacy of rebellion has left behind a furious people who have been deliberately isolated and marginalized by the Indian government. The Indian constitution, the moral underpinning of Indian democracy was adopted by parliament in 1950. But it was a tragic day for tribal people. The constitution ratified colonial policy and made the state custodian of tribal homelands. Overnight, it turned the entire tribal population into squatters on their own land. It denied them their traditional rights to forest produce. It criminalized a whole way of life. In exchange for the right to vote, it snatched away their right to livelihood and dignity. Having dispossessed them and pushed them into a downward spiral of indigence, 
In a cruel slate of hand, the government began to use their own penury against them. Each time it needed to displace a large population <clears throat> for dams, irrigation projects, or mines, it talked of bringing tribals into the mainstream or of giving them the fruits of modern development. Of the tens of millions of internally displaced people, more than 30 million by big dams alone, refugees of India's progress, the great majority are tribal people. And when the government begins to talk about tribal welfare, it's always time to worry. Over the past five years or so, the governments of Chhattisgarh, Jharkhand, Orissa, and West Bengal have signed hundreds of memorandums of understanding with corporate houses worth several billion rupees, all of them secret for steel plants, sponge iron factories, power plants, aluminum refineries, dams, and mines. In order for the MOUs to translate into real money, tribal people must be moved, and therefore this war. When a country that calls itself a democracy openly declares war within its borders, what does that war look like? Does the resistance stand a chance? Should it? Who are the Maoists? Are they just violent nihilists foisting an outdated ideology on tribal people, goading them into a hopeless insurrection? What lessons have they learned from their past experience? Is armed struggle intrinsically undemocratic? Is the sandwich theory of ordinary tribals being caught in the crossfire between the state and the Maoists an accurate one? Are Maoists and tribals two entirely discrete categories, as is being made out? Do their interests converge? Have they learned anything from each other? Have they changed each other? An article on the internet says that Israel's Mossad is training 30 high-ranking Indian police officers in the techniques of targeted assassinations to render the Maoist organization headless. There's talk in the press about the new hardware that has been bought from Israel, laser rangefinders, thermal imaging equipment, and unmanned drones so popular with the US Army. Perfect weapons to use against the poor. I arrived at the Ma Danteshwari Mandir, well in time for my appointment. First day, first show. I had my camera, my small coconut, and a powdery red tikka on my forehead. I wondered if someone was watching me and having a laugh. Within minutes, a young boy approached me. He had a cap and a backpack school bag, chipped red nail polish on his fingernails. No Hindi outlook, no bananas. Are you the one who's going in, he asked me. No Namaskar Guruji. I didn't know what to say. He took out a soggy note from his pocket and handed it to me. It said, Outlook Nahimila. Couldn't find Outlook. <laughs> and the bananas? I ate them, he said. I got, <laughs> I got hungry. He really was a security threat. <clears throat> his backpack said, Charlie Brown, not your ordinary blockhead. He said his name was Mangtu. We walked to the bus stand only a few minutes away from the temple. 
There were two men on motorbikes. There was no conversation, just a glance of acknowledgement, a shifting of body weight, the revving of engines. I had no idea where we were going. We passed the house of the superintendent of police, which I recognized from my last visit. He was a candid man, the superintendent. See, ma'am, frankly speaking, this problem can't be solved by us, police, or military. The problem with these tribals is they don't understand greed. Unless they become greedy, there's no hope for us. I've told my boss, remove the force and instead put a TV in every home. Everything will automatically be sorted out. In no time at all, we were riding out of town. No tail. It was a long ride, three hours by my watch. It ended abruptly in the middle of nowhere on an empty road with the forest on either side. Mangtu got off. I did too. The bikes left and I picked up my backpack and followed the small internal security challenge into the forest. It was a beautiful day. The forest floor was a carpet of gold. In a while, we emerged on the white sandy banks of a broad, flat river. It was obviously monsoon fed, so now it was more or less a sand flat. At the center, a stream, ankle deep. Across was Pakistan. Out there, ma'am, the candid SP had said to me, my boys shoot to kill. I remembered that as we began to cross. I saw us in a policeman's rifle sights, tiny figures in a landscape, easy to pick off. But Mangtu seemed quite unconcerned, and I took my cue from him. And then, then we got lost, basically. <laughs> we spent two days waiting to, to be contacted. We'll be right back with more of Arundhati Roy reading from her book, Walking with the Comrades. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. If you'd like more information or for CD copies of this program, please call 800-529-5736. Because of listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the U.S., Canada, and South Africa. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. We now return to Arundhati Roy, reading from her book, Walking with the Comrades, recorded in November 2011 in New York City. They arrive in the early afternoon. I can see them from a distance, about 15 of them, all in olive green uniforms, running towards us. From the way they run, I can tell they are the heavy hitters, the People's Liberation Guerrilla Army, the PLGA, for whom the thermal imaging and laser-guided rifles, for whom the Jungle Warfare College. They carry serious rifles, INSAS, SLR, two have AK-47s. The leader of the squad is Comrade Madhav, who's been with the party since he was nine. He's from Warangal, Andhra Pradesh, and is extremely apologetic. 
There was a major miscommunication, he says again and again. It never happens. I was supposed to have arrived at the main camp on the first night, but someone dropped the baton in the jungle relay. We made you wait, we made you walk so much, we ran all the way when the message came that you were here, he said. I said it was okay, that I'd come prepared to wait, to walk and listen. He wants to leave immediately because the people in the camp were waiting and worried. It's a few hours walk to the camp. It's getting dark when we arrive. There are several layers of sentries and concentric circles of patrolling. There must be a hundred comrades lined up in two rows. Everyone has a weapon and a smile. They begin to sing, Lal Lal Salam, Lal Lal Salam, Aane Wale Saathiyon Ko Lal Lal Salam, which means red salute to the comrades who have arrived. It was sung sweetly as though it was a folk song about a river or a forest blossom. With the song, the greeting, the handshake, the clenched fist, everybody greets everyone murmuring, Lal Salam. I met three sisters, Sukhyari, Suktai, and Sukali, not young, perhaps in their 40s, from Narayanpur district. They had been in KAMS for 12 years. The villagers depend on them to deal with the police. The police come in groups of two to three hundred. They steal everything, jewelry, chickens, pigs, pots and pans, bows and arrows, Sukali said. They won't even leave a knife. Her house in Inar had been burned twice, once by the Naga Battalion and once by the CRPF. Sukhiari had been arrested and jailed in Jagdarpur for several months. Once they took away the whole village, saying that the men were all nakshals. Sukhiari followed with all the women and children. They surrounded the police station and refused to leave until the men were freed. Whenever they take someone away, Sukhdai says, you have to go immediately and snatch them back before they write any report. Once they write in their books, it becomes very difficult. Sukhiari, who as a child was abducted and forcibly married to an older man, now organizes mass rallies, speaks at meetings. The men depend on her for protection. I asked her what the party meant to her. Naxalwad ka matlab hamara parivar. Naxalism means our family. When we hear of an attack, it's like our family has been hurt, Sukhiari said. I met comrade Somari Gaude, 20 years old, and she's already served a two-year jail sentence in Jagdalpur. She was in Innar village on the 8th of January 2007, the day that 740 policemen laid a cordon around it because they had information that comrade Niti was there. But the village militia of which Somari was a member was there. The police opened fire at dawn. They killed two boys. Then they caught three others, two boys, Dusri Salam and Ranai and Somari. Dusri and Ranai were tied up and shot. Somari was beaten within an inch of her life. The police got a tractor with a trailer and loaded the dead bodies onto it. Somari was made to sit with the dead bodies and taken to Narayanpur. I met Chamri, mother of comrade Dilip, who was shot on the 6th of July, 2009. She says that after they killed him, the police tied her son's body to a pole 
like an animal and carried it with them. They need to produce bodies to get their cash rewards before someone else muscles in on the kill. Chamri ran behind them all the way to the police station. By the time they reached their destination, the body didn't have a scrap of clothing on it. On the way, Chamri says, they left the body by the roadside while they stopped at a dhaba to have tea and biscuits, which they didn't pay for. Picture this mother for a moment following her son's corpse through the forest, stopping at a distance to wait for his murderers to finish their tea. They didn't let her have her son's body back so she could give him a proper funeral. They only let her throw a fistful of earth in the pit in which they buried the others they had killed that day. Chamri says she wants revenge. Badla ku badla. Revenge, blood for blood. I met the elected members of the Jantana Sarkar, that's the local government that administers six villages. They described a police raid. They come at night, 300, 400, sometimes 1,000. They lay a cordon around the village and lie in wait. At dawn, they catch the first people who go into the fields and use them as human shields to enter the village to show them where the booby traps are. Once the police enter the village, they loot and steal and burn houses. They come with dogs. The dogs catch those who try to run. They chase chickens and pigs, and the police kill them and take them away in sacks. The vigilante special police officers come along with the police, because they are the ones who know where people hide their money and jewelry. They catch people and take them away and extract money before they release them. They always carry some extra Naxalite uniforms with them in case they find someone to kill because they get money for killing Naxalites, so they manufacture some. In this tranquil-looking forest, life seems completely militarized now. People know words like cordon and search, firing, advance, retreat, down, action. To harvest their crops, they need the guerrilla army to do a sentry patrol. Going to the market is a military operation. The markets are full of mukbirs, informers who the police have lured from their villages with money. The men can't go to market anymore. The women go, but they are watched closely. If they buy even a little extra, the police accuse them of buying it for Naxalites. Chemists have instructions not to let people buy medicine except in very small quantities. Low-priced rations from the public distribution system, sugar, rice, kerosene, are warehoused in or near police stations making it impossible for most people to buy. Basically, this whole forest is under siege. You know, so it's not just that people are being killed. They're also being starved. They're being cut off from their resources. I just want to read Article 2 of the United Nations Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. Any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or part a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group, such as A, killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, or forcibly transferring children of the group to another group.
basically all these conditions are being fulfilled in central India. So the world's great democracy is at war. It's at war in Kashmir, the most densely militarized occupation in the world, where it's already killed 70,000 people. It's at war in Manipur, it's at war in Nagaland, and now it's moving its army into central India. It's buying billions of dollars of weapons from Israel and the United States to use on the poorest people in the world. Thanks. That's it for this edition of Making Contact. Special thanks to the Center for Place, Culture, and Politics at the City University of New York's Graduate Center. To hear the full, unedited reading and question and answer with Arundhati Roy, reading from her book, Walking with the Comrades, log on to our website, radioproject.org. Like Making Contact on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.